Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Elliot Turner of RGA Investment Advisors. He is the Twitter guru. We're going to talk to him about valuing Twitter, uh, where he sees the PayPal opportunity and his investment style right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. I, I don't know how long I've been aware of you. I was definitely aware of you before we met on Twitter, possibly because you were writing that blog right you're writing something yeah I when did you start writing yeah you know writing was one of those things i never actually uh planned to do it per se um when i started uh in you geez i had blogs as basically projects while i was in law school um i actually started a podcast in law school with a couple friends and we had twenty thousand downloads one of my friends what? who now is working at google was building uh, he, at the time he was just working in uh, for one of the large agencies and he had heard about podcasts. He heard how you could build RSS feeds for distribution and he wanted to play around with the technology. And, uh, he wasn't one of my fish, fr uh, friends, like a bunch of us were really passionate about the band fish and we would follow them around, <laughs> go to a lot of concerts and et cetera. We created a podcast called trapped in time that you could find on the internet archive, uh, after fish had like you know, retired at the time. They're now back, thankfully. Um, and, you know, this podcast was huge and like blew up. And, you know, I was writing alongside it on that. I had a personal blog where I'd write about like just anything that was interesting to me. I had connected with other people who are writers. And, you know, I never like had a specific plan. But you know, I think one of the beauties of the early internet was you could do whatever the hell you wanted. And there was a lot of white space. And, um, you know, when I was working, it was really, um, the second, uh, prop trading firm I was at, and we could talk a little more about, you know, my origin in this business formally. Um, they had a pretty robust online presence and they were building out their own blog. And they basically said to me, like, you could do whatever you want with this. Um, so I started writing, uh, daily posts. Uh, after I left that firm, I was writing for the wall street cheat sheet every day, pushing stuff to seeking alpha. Um, then I started my own blog called Compounding My Interests, um, which is something I really wish I could like keep up with again. I'm actually like I, I kind of reserved the Substack domain for that. And I have these ambitions to start writing again. And I feel like I have an interesting story to tell to get it launched. Um, I was going to do that before the whole COVID period started. And we then had no daycare and school for our kids. And that kind of consumed yeah. Yeah. some of the time I was going to commit to that. But, you know, I'm I'm. The, the one thing I'm sure of is I'm definitely going to get back to it. So always been doing writing here and there and been interested in that. What would you do? Would you share your research as you do it? Is that too proprietary? You just share something else more broad? Well, you know, I mean, at the time when I was doing it, it would be generous to call it research. It was more like my explorations as someone yeah. who is interested in markets and who wanted to learn. So I was sharing a combination of like what I found interesting and the pieces that I was learning and throwing my ideas out there. 
Um, and it was, you know, I think um, one of the things that people underestimate in this all is, you know, they think like I need to blog be or, or I need to do this and have a plan to get something out of it. Yeah. And just doing it, I mean, first and foremost, it forces you to kind of like center and anchor on your own thoughts. Like there's a very big difference between having an idea in your head and having something that you could put on paper and actually make airtight and let yeah. it stand up on its own. So it like forces you to think and think clearer than you would if you were just like kind of aggregating and compiling ideas in your head. It's something that's a history. So you could like reflect on your past and hold yourself accountable, make sure you're improving and moving forward. And then so much serendipity happens from it. Uh, the fact that I was blogging and putting out these ideas and I'd reflect back on it and say like, wow, I, I, I'd hardly call myself an investor, but there were people out there who were like, hey, I kind of like what you're doing here. You know, this we're talking about 2007 to 2009, and these people had been burnt in the financial crisis, and they're like, I got absolutely annihilated. I didn't like the people who were managing my money. Like, you know, I'd love for you to find a way to be able to manage my money. Um, and, you know, obviously friends and family are some of the first readers, but like when you throw things out on the internet, it gets a lot farther than you'd ever imagine. Um, and so it was fun. And like, I met so many great people through it. I got into like interesting conferences because they're like, oh, you have a blog? Why don't you come and just write <laughs> about it? Um, and, you know, all kinds of things that you'd never imagine. And, you know, I never had a plan, never had like ideas. I, I Basically, all I had was a promise to myself that, you know, I try to get better every day. And that I wanted to look at myself yesterday and say, wow, I, I got better today and look at myself, you know, five years ago and be like, you know, that that guy was so clueless. He didn't know what he was um, doing. And I think that's the one. Exactly. And that's really how I feel. I'm like, hopefully I, I keep thinking that about myself, though, you know, coming from like a much kind of higher plateau today than than when I was starting. It is one of the really nice things about this business in particular that you really don't ever get to a point where you know everything you just uh, this is one of the things that i've discovered the more i understand about value investing the more i understand what a phenomenon buffett is for example there are just there are things that and then the weirdest thing when you go back and read the letters again i, th I think i have a new insight and i go back and read the letters and i'm like oh my god he was talking about this in 1983 like he covered this mm -hmm. years ago and dismissed it immediately like just thought about it dismissed it and moved on <laughs> It's truly unbelievable, right? And I'd imagine from your seat too, you get to speak to an interesting person every week. You get to pick their brain and I'd imagine that provokes a lot of questions in your head and a lot of reflection and like, you know, what what can I do to like, what lessons do I wanna take from this conversation? What can I internalize myself? And you know, you also have basically effectively a journal that's out there of your own thinking and your own evolution. And by the way, like, uh, your book, Quantitative Value, was incredibly influential on me early on. And I'm like, wow, look what Toby's doing. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, putting these ideas down on paper and it like really stands up. It's something that's like, you know, one, one of the things that actually got me stopping uh, writing was I started putting this pressure on myself that I didn't want to write it if I didn't feel that it could withstand the test of time. Yeah. So at first I was writing these ephemeral things like, oh, look at what, you know, this stock did today. And it's like, that's junk like i don't really want to be doing that like i don't want to be a keyboard monkey like that i want everything to be thoughtful so then it turned from a daily cadence to a weekly cadence to a my god i'm holding myself to way too high a bar i can't write again and then it's three months and i'm like well you know my first one back has to be good so 
you know, what, what could I write that's good? And then, you know, more time transpires. And now it's been a couple of years. That said, I do write a quarterly letter now. So like every quarter I do actually put pen to paper and like formulate my thoughts, but that's a very different exercise than blogging. I've been blogging more like journaling and, yeah. you know, like you said with Buffett and his letters, I think one of the coolest things I've ever read, I don't, I don't think enough value investors read George Soros. Um, if you read Alchemy of Finance, the, the journal in the, the reflexivity. Yeah, the journal, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, reflexivity is an amazing concept. And what's cool, I think, is he has this actual where so not only does he introduce you to the concept, but you could see his ideas evolving from one day to the next. And, you know, he'll tell you the day that his back is aching and you could kind of get a contextual understanding for like why he felt certain ways about different positions. Um, and so, you know, I think that's important for each of us to do for ourselves, too, in one way, shape or form, at least periodically. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be every day, but periodically to jot down like our thoughts and our thoughts about our own thoughts and yeah. kind of like, you know, really reflect on that. Um, it's one of the most important things. You started out, so you went to law school and then you were going to become a sports agent in the NFL. So the, the, how does the law school, you know, do you, do you apply? Did you practice as a lawyer at any point there? Never. And I never intended to. Yeah. That's smart. <laughs> When you when does does the but it's still it's still a useful framework for thinking through ideas. Do you apply? Do you still use that framework at all as you're investing? So I was actually talking about this with my wife the other night. I long said the best thing I got out of law school was a beautiful wife, and um, <laughs> you know we met in our three L year at law school. And interestingly, you know I've I've long asserted that I had to rewire my brain to think differently. Uh, then lawyers are trained to think because lawyers are taught to kind of like understand where their confines are and work within those in a maybe a creative way, but not necessarily very creative, like focus on semantics and, you know, like find their angle, but um, very rigid structures within which lawyers work. Uh, but on the flip side of things, like, you know, so I've long asserted I had to rewire my brain, but then the more I think about it, one of the interesting concepts from law that I've really started to appreciate, right, is this idea of common law, where you start with ideas and principles, and like you keep refining and pushing forward those ideas and principles based on actions that happen that are like nuanced from where the original was established. And you keep advancing this thing forward. And like, it's not like there are specific laws that are written in, in stone, you know, there are kind of different perspectives that you could take to it. And I really like this idea of like common law as being this dance in an evolutionary process where um, it kind of like adapts to the reality of your culture and time and the realities of your culture and time kind of push it. And it's kind of this feedback loop and symbiosis and kind of evolving toward a higher place. So I've like reconsidered my, I had to rewire my brain and it's like, actually I should have been thinking about it from this angle. There's two elements to it, right? There's the element, there's the idea that you're bound by the decision that was, that you, you're bound by a previous decision. And so your your new uh, decision has to be consistent with that previous decision, but then you have additional additional facts. So it's a slightly different circumstance. And then you have to apply that same sort of consistency to the new circumstance and it evolves in that way. And that's it's this very organic evolution of it and it probably useful for and you have reason. law in your background too right i practiced oh, you really practiced. sadly as an m a oh, lawyer sorry. yeah in in the u.s in in australia and the u.s for, for eight and a half years before uh 
before I was able to Amazing. escape. Amazing, yeah. And you know what? What's interesting with your phrasing, like when you said it like that, it's like, wow, it's actually kind of like a Bayesian framework, right? You start with your anchor and you give a lot more weight to your starting point than your right. incremental information, except your incremental information could keep moving you. And I think, you know, thinking probabilistically in that way is one of the most important things we could do as investors. Like we're trying to build this mosaic based on a right. whole pool of information we have. And we know that it's imperfect and we know that the future is going to be different than the past. And we're inherently flawed as forecasters. We can't make very yes. good predictions. Um, so it's about balancing, like, how much weight do we give to what we know in the past and how do we weight incremental new information? And that's kind of like the way you phrase common law. That's what it is, right? So you, 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 you spend a little bit of time as a sports agent. Well, not at, or in a sports I, I was agency. I for them between my 2L and 3L year and I was going to okay. work. You know, that was, that was what I was hoping to do on the way out. But then you transition to, you become a prop trader. Yeah, so transition sounds a little too smooth. <laughs> it was really a mess. Um, and this is, I think, when I inevitably put pen to paper on that Substack I'm talking about, I'll write about the intervening event or events, however you want to speak of it, um, that led me into, uh, or really back into the finance world. Um, I, uh, instead of actually working in the sports agent world, um, had someone who like, aggressively tried to hire me and offered me a whole lot of flexibility that otherwise I wouldn't have had. And I worked for that person for about uh, six months formally, and it was just a terrible, nightmarish experience. And when I was fired on the day before Thanksgiving in 2007, um, I was like, what the hell do I do now? Like, you know, I don't really want to work in that world. I was so jaded from what I'd seen being exposed yeah. to, you know, a kind of really strong personality in the sports world that I was like, I, I really need to do something different. I had had a passion for the stock market since I was lucky in the fourth grade, Mrs. Burdick was my teacher and she taught me, uh, she gave everyone in our class uh, an enrollment in the Newsday stock market game, gave each of us the Berkshire annual report, told us who Warren Buffett was and introduced us to this idea of investing. And I'd always known that no matter what I did, like I wanted to be involved in the stock market. And I, you know, I could talk a little more about like what I'd done, like messing around and getting caught up in the dot-com bubble. Um, but, you know, I knew I wanted to do something in investing. Um, two of my close friends from college ended up working uh, at this firm, Chimera Capital in New York. And so, you know, I was really looking for jobs. The job market wasn't where, you know, ideally, you know, you wanted it to be as 2007 was turning into 2008. And we were, you know, not long before Bear Stearns actually uh, collapsed. And, you know, I was thinking about like, what do I want to do? My friends love their job. I love the stock market. I'd already been like, you know, messing around with some of my own money there. And uh, this firm was hiring aggressively from Emory University in Michigan, which they had great success with. I went to Emory. I'm a natural fit. It was a really good setup. And, uh, you know, so I took a seat on a prop desk. Now, prop desk sounds glorious, but it was really like day trading support money. How does it work? Do they, do they, what, what do they do? How does it work? They give you a million dollars of the firm's money to trade or how does it work? All of the business model and their approach toward training and trading is a lot better than any other that I've uh, since learned about. Um, but effectively what they do is, you know, there's a robust training program. You start paper trading. You have to prove that you're not going to blow up on paper. And then they give you, uh, you know, they start you with like $100,000 of prop capital. I think they're levered something like 20 to one. So like the actual pool of capital is really small. Um, can't hold any positions overnight. 
and you're really just a keyboard money a monkey it's not too different than playing like a video game um and at the time it was really how do you make money if you can't hold overnight how, what do you do you're like literally just you, you, you're trading the lines on the screen uh, with there it actually wasn't even the lines in the beginning it was far more focused on you could actually see depth in the order book and you'd see where like bids and asks were and it was really i mean in in effect i mean to to speak bluntly about it you're trying to front run large orders that you see and you'd I get see. in front of them and you try I to see. scrape, you know, with a thousand shares, call it like 30 cents in a stock and do it over and over and over. And you're making uh, you're, you're really turning through a whole lot of commissions to try to make money. Um, and there's some people who, you know, especially at that time, were absolutely phenomenal at it and could do incredibly well. Uh, but it never like I never liked it. It never sh like struck me intellectually at all. Um, a yeah. lot of it is really behavioral, though. Um, one of the things I love and respect about Chimera deeply is that they empowered people to like think and to uh, indoctrinate people that there's no one right way to make money in markets. Like making money in markets is about uh, finding a strategy that fits your personality. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the any one right way. Everything's about the quest for conviction behind your ideas. And you have to get yourself in position to like have these ideas, have conviction behind it and, you know, manage risk in, in an appropriate framework. And one of the things I've said to a lot of people, I've seen people who like, you know, especially as you get better and they do let you take overnight risk and you could start swing trading and doing, uh, you know, things that are get closer to investing, but not quite in investing. I've seen people risk manage their way to fantastic returns. They didn't know a single thing about the instruments they were trading. They didn't know a single thing about like, companies or business analysis they just really understood and internalized risk management and i think that's left a strong impression on me as i've you know developed my own trading strategy that it, it has to fit my personality that there's no one true answer so explore and learn about all that everyone comes at this from and you know always be disciplined and rigid with risk management how, how do you characterize what you do now how would you describe you know, like an optimal opportunity or your, your process for getting to that optimal opportunity? Yeah, so um, there are two things that I'd say are important to me. I mean, I came, started in this professionally in the day trading world, except I'm what you call low turnover now. This is the first year we'll have exceeded 20% turnover in the portfolio. So once again, rewiring my brain from going from like hitting buttons like that to like holding things for a long time, right? 20% turnover means a couple things to me. Uh, one is it means that you really only need to come up with a handful of ideas in a year if you have an average position size of about 5%, right? So slow things down, right? Be methodical, take a slow approach toward it. And the other means, you know, when you have a 20% uh, turnover, roughly speaking, you're talking about holding a position on average five years. Right. So I'm really looking for long term investment opportunities. I'm looking for businesses who like my return is going to be driven far more by the business itself than it will be by, um, you know, a re-rating of the multiple or anything right. of that sort. Right. And so when I describe myself, when I, I, I hate labels, like I hate having to categorize myself. But one of the beauties, I think, like a label like GARP, which I fully subscribe to. You know, I mean, depending on the market environment, I could end up more on the value side of the Garpy spectrum or the growthier side of the spectrum. And I don't have to be beholden to one or the other. But I do have to at all times 
anchor myself to valuation, right? That's a religion. I'm indoctrinated there. Like, I can't just say, like, this business is qualitatively awesome and I'm willing to buy it at any price. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, on the other hand, I also do have to say, like, okay, I'm not willing to purely buy a melting ice cube. That doesn't fit my setup. I have to have some sort of structural growth in this business, some sort of opportunity for them to be a little bigger you know, tomorrow and thereafter than they are today. And I think that's really important to me. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the positions. So we, uh, we've had a conversation, we had a conversation yesterday about a couple of positions that um, I love your insights on them. And I, Twitter's one that uh, you're well known for being uh, quite bullish on Twitter. And um, it's how we met. Or it's it's one of the you. I think I think I said it. I think yeah. that you were one of the first people to that I ever interacted with on Twitter. I'm, I'm almost certain that that's, amazing. that's the case. I'd have to go back and have a look at it, but that would be like 2009. I think that's probably not right because I, I think I signed up in like 2009, but then I didn't use it for a couple of years. And I think that you pointed out it was around the time that Google Reader killed itself, and so Google killed the Reader, and then everybody had to go and find another. They killed the homepage, and they killed the Reader. And all of a sudden, Twitter became the homepage and the reader, which is, I think that's exactly what happened mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the funny things is uh, the when I was telling you about my start in the podcast world way back in uh, 2004. You could be a podcast right? billionaire. I know. Now. I had a huge following. You could be the you, That's before Joe yeah, Rogan. Exactly. Could have made a huge and had a big audience and all that sort of stuff. That same friend was like, this Twitter thing is awesome. Don't really know what it's going to be, but like, you should check it out. I created an account and really its only function was like when I'd write a blog post, it would send an automatic blast to Twitter saying like, read this. So I didn't actually like tweet or engage with people, but in Google Reader at the time, and I, I understand you did the exact same thing as me, I had this social circle of my friends who were interested in the same things and, you know, like a slightly different group in finance than I did and call it fantasy baseball and, you know, music. And we'd share things through Reader and we'd each read each other's things and, you know, I, I mean, I really uh, was very into RSS and thought it was like, you know, the best thing ever because this was how I kind of curated my own reading list and I religiously read it morning, middle of the day and evening. And when Google killed Reader, I was like, oh, my God, what do I do now? Like my whole like, I don't know, call it intellectual development was built on this one platform and now it's gone. What do I do? And I was like, OK, maybe now is the time that I explore this quirky thing called Twitter. Um, and I started engaging on Twitter, started talking to people, started connecting to people. You know, I, I don't even think there, there, there wasn't exactly FinTwit. There were like certain clicks at the time. Um, and really for me, it was an exploration of like learning how to invest, of uh, like, you know, following what's interesting. Back then, I definitely spoke a lot more macro than I did business analysis. Though, you know, there were shades of both that were like mixed in along the way. Um, and, you know, I think, uh, like, I, I'm so grateful. Like, thank you, Google, for killing Reader. I was so devastated at the time, but it's, like, one of the best things that's ever oh, happened no. to me. Um, it's opened so much serendipity. Like, being involved in Twitter has been huge. Um, so, you know, like, early on in Twitter, I, I, I think I, in the grand scheme of things, I was very early to Twitter and to appreciate Twitter. Um, now, when Twitter was IPOing, and you could see my tweet history, you know, I really felt that um, it was overvalued and the expectation of this platform uh, was just way too much for what it was. Um, and so like I wrote down on paper at the time, like take notice of this thing when it gets to a $10 billion market cap. 
Like that that's what I thought would be interesting. Like it was a little too much at that time. Expectations were too high. I mean, I don't even know like a lot of what I ended up knowing by the time I invested in it, but you know, it was a little bit of a mess. Ten ten billion dollars seemed like the right spot. And if I recall, it was something like, I don't know, forty, fifty billion uh in in, in the early days when it came public. Uh and you know, I but but see one of the things in my process that I've always done is uh I started like I I think one of the things I internalized that uh, Buffett said is there are no called strikes. Like there's no situation that you have to be involved in. But, you know, that does mean that like it's worth it, it doesn't mean it's not worth paying attention to things that are expensive, but interesting. Right. Learn about them when they're new. Learn about them when things are going well. And then one day there might be an opportunity where, well, you know, Mr. Market gets a little less sanguine. And you could step in, having understood it this whole time and having applied like a Bayesian yeah. frame, framework, updating your understanding of the business as time goes on. Um, so when Twitter hit their uh, uh, problems, like I was really paying attention and I was really interested and digging in deep there. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about it because it's been I, I absolutely love the product and I think it's incredibly powerful across a number of different from a research perspective, from getting news, from a marketing perspective. It's it's great it's a great tool for all of those things. The the problem has always been that the business hasn't been great. You know, Mark Zuckerberg famously described it as a clown car that fell into a gold mine and it's had this part time CEO who seemed to be <laughs> running the more fun business that was doing quite well. And it you know, it's got all of these sort of ongoing issues but certainly something seems to have changed since and maybe i'm wrong maybe it hasn't sort of maybe it was always this way but i feel like elliot when elliot sort of popped and up not on me, board elliot, the, the actor. No, yeah, sorry elliot elliot yep. management elliot uh paul singer's elliot because uh, you know that that's got to be the the toughest guy out there right and he's a very very shrewd investor so if he's on twitter's board then you sort of or if the if elliot's on twitter's board then you have to think that something very interesting potentially could happen there so how important are they to what twitter was doing or do you think that even without those guys they and maybe just talk a little bit sure about yeah here's doing. a funny thing someone on twitter thought i was the elliot who is uh you know the elliot that wedged their way onto the board um god i could that's pretty could cool the tweet it was hilarious um i think it's because i'm basically like the only person in fintwit who's actually bullish on twitter i mean what are the chances that someone who knows someone who knows really about Twitter and has the same name. Right, yeah, there you go. Um, so, you know, I think there are a few things that are going on. Um, I actually deeply respect Jack. I think he's one of the ultimate product innovators of our time. How many people have come up with, like, effectively three separate businesses that each make a billion dollars? So I'm counting twice in Square because there's, you know, Square itself for a merchant and Cash App. Um, and, you know, I think some of the flack he gets is justified on the one hand, but I think it's a little unfair. Perhaps their biggest problem is they don't have a COO. And um, I think they had a pretty ineffective board. Um, so, you know, I had a position in Twitter, but I didn't get really big until this March and after um, Elliot and Silver Lake each got board seats. And more importantly, I think, you know, there's another key sign in there, which is that um, Patrick Pichette had been on the board for about a year or so. I could be, I know I'm roughly right there, but... Um, Omed Kordistani was removed as independent chair and Patrick Pichette became the independent chairman of the board. Now, I don't know if all of you would know the name Patrick Pichette, but interestingly, he was the CFO of Google during some of their most important years. 
And so if you talk ab about a guy who really knows the financial side and understanding how to make money at a web-based advertising business, I mean, this is someone whose yeah. insights are priceless. And now in April, like shortly after this reconstituted board was like, you know, kind of released to us publicly, um, Jack Dorsey accidentally periscoped publicly and was talking <laughs> about how, you know, like he, it was supposed to be an inner team meeting with, with his team. And he's like, oh, yeah. So, you know, now my board in, in, in a Jack kind of like mumbly sort of like way is like now my board's actually paying attention and I have to talk to them regularly. And, you know, then he's like, oh, my God, this is public. And he shut it off. Um, you can still find the video. I think BuzzFeed kind of posted it somewhere. Um, but to me, that was really, really important. And, you know, like, thank, thank God we got that little preview there because they have an engaged board. They have a board who, like, when I think about Elliot and Silver Lake, I think of it as a good cop, bad cop kind of setup where, like, Elliot is, you know, they wanted Jack's head. That was the headline that came out there publicly. Like, they wanted him out as CEO. And I don't doubt for a second that that's what they wanted. Um, and they are really disciplined when it comes to expenses in businesses and technology businesses. They've done a great job reining in some other companies. Uh, they've broken up some other companies. They've forced sales. Um, they really get what they want at the end of the day. And then in comes Silver Lake, who buys this billion-dollar convert with like a forty and a quarter, forty-one and a quarter uh, strike price, which at the time, you know, the stock was in the mid to low thirties. So they're saying, you know, we want some upside. We we think there's going to be some upside. Um, and Silver Lake comes in, you know, they've got a little more history in venture capital than they do in actual public activism. I'm not sure if there's any other like case where they've truly gone activist. I kind of think they're the good cop insofar as, you know, they have a, a history of helping businesses monetize. They have a history of like growing businesses. And so they come in here and you have Elliot and Silver Lake and they kind of each bring their respective disciplines. Now, the interesting thing about the good cop and the bad cop is that, you know, while they are seemingly... Uh, diametrically opposed to one another, they're actually on the same team, right? When you think about it, the good cop and the bad cop are working together. And who are they working for? They're working for us shareholders. So like, you know, it's the first time you can truly feel conviction that everyone uh, is geared toward like looking out for and answering to the interests of shareholders at Twitter. Um, so I think that was a really, really uh, meaningful change. And I don't think people appreciate the magnitude of that enough. Can you uh, break down how you think about the valuation of Twitter uh, for us and what, what the drivers that we should be looking at as we think about that too? Yeah. Um, so one other point that I want to make on like the structure of Twitter and coming out of this big mess before like going to exact uh, monetization, because I think it's important for one of the most important KPIs in the business is that, you know, when Twitter was built, Twitter was this big heaping mess there literally was no twitter.com like it was an api and it started with over text message but then there were these various gateways that other people built accessing the api so there was no twitter it wasn't built as a site and that's really different than a lot of these other companies that are out there in web land and it's got its pluses and minuses but for twitter thus far it has had way more minuses and so when Twitter.com became an actual site, that process was really messy. It was uh, this group behind TweetDeck that was actually rolling up these other gateways and access points to Twitter. And so Twitter eventually ended up buying TweetDeck and building their own Twitter.com. And it was like a really haphazard, like messy process. 
and they had a lot of code debt and they didn't have like an actual underlying like way to build product to push new product to market to experiment um and you know they were encumbered by their past in a big way and i think that had a lot to do with what went wrong so when you're thinking about valuing twitter like how how this all relates to valuing twitter is the first refoundational piece of rebuilding twitter when jack dorsey came in was like rebuilding their user experience the whole user side of uh the platform and that involved you know things that were not just code related it involved making really hard choices about what safety looks like about what it means to be uh you know make make a forum where people could actually engage and so they had to make a lot of hard choices had to face a lot of challenging questions um were put in certain positions where they could uh where where some of these hard choices made sure that no one was happy um and so it's a really hard place to be um but they did it and they just recently rebuilt their ad tech stack um but so in rebuilding the user side of things you really started seeing the progress uh about a year and a half ago that user growth actually started again on the platform they had stagnated for uh nearly a handful of years without being able to add any new users on the platform So when you think about valuing Twitter, they give us like two KPIs to work with basically. Um uh they don't even really give it to you. You have to like, kind of like figure out the ARPU side of things, but you you have ARPU and you have um how many DAUs you have and you have to think about, you know, how each of them are growing or not because ARPU in particular had taken, you know, a meaningful drop uh this year after flatlining the prior two years. Um and so the, why was that? Uh okay, so in 2019 ARPU uh was trending upward nicely in the first half of the year. That's average revenue per user for for uh, for the folks here. Exactly. If you didn't exactly. So it's sorry sorry I cut you off there it was $25 per user yeah, did you well, say? Yeah, well, so they are $25 per user. They well in 2018 and 2019. Uh 2019 was looking like it was going to be better than 2018. Uh but then in the second half of the year they had these big problems with one of their revenue products called Map. If you know those little tweets or really on any any platform any ad that's asking you to install an app that is map and you know in certain markets for twitter especially japan really really meaningful revenue product and so like in japan if you kind of like figure out arpu you know they don't disclose it so roughly speaking they were down somewhere by the order of 20% arpu in japan now japan's a really important market for twitter it's their second biggest market in the world after the after the us um so losing 20% of your revenue per user um you know that that's a pretty big hit interestingly Material, arpu was yeah. up in the US in 2019 but in aggregate their arpu was down fractionally um you know in uh, overall and then obviously with covid um arpu took a, a really meaningful drop and that had to do with the fact that twitter itself uh, something around 80% of all advertising on twitter is what you'd call top of funnel brand advertising So it's like, you know, the Procter and Gamble's of the world who try to raise awareness about a brand as opposed to direct response, which is what you see, you know, far more on Facebook. So when, you know, COVID happened, brand budget stopped and all of a sudden, you know, the floor fell out. Um it's really come back in a big way and it's gotten stronger, but, you know, Twitter's had uh, Twitter has to do a lot of work to improve their revenue product to kind of broaden the kinds of um opportunities they give advertisers. and it's it, it really required rebuilding their entire tech stack from scratch and there's some great blog posts on the Twitter infrastructure blog that explain why they were in this problem 
what it meant and how they could fix it. And now that the new uh, ad tech stack was launched in the second half of this year, um, they could kind of iterate on things much quicker. So you're starting to see things like carousel ads. Just yesterday, they announced that they're finally doing frequency casts. And a lot of people are like, uh, this is so Twitter. There's so much low-hanging fruit. Like, why haven't they tackled this sooner? Clown car, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, actually, <laughs> you know, I mean, I get why they hadn't done it. They weren't able to. They were encumbered by their past, and they had to, like, re-platform and build this foundational stuff. So when I think about Twitter, when I think about valuation, when I start, you know, the first thing you could do is simply back of napkin say, well, okay, they've had huge growth in their user network the last year, you know, nearly 30% year over year. Um, you take that growth in the user network and say, okay, I'm going to slap on my 2018 or 2019 ARPU of 25 bucks. And I'll say, okay, look, they've given me long-term guidance on what their EBITDA margin range would look like. They've said 40 to 45% EBITDA margin range. And, you know, they've delivered within that range in the past, though they had been below it last year. So let's say, you know, they, they end up at 35% instead of hitting the low end of the range. Um, so you take that the the 186 million users multiply by 25 dollar uh, ARPU, um, apply that 35 percent margin. That's two billion dollars in EBITDA on a mid 30 million dollar market cap with four billion dollars of net cash. Um, you know, which should be growing yeah. just if the user base keeps growing. You know, call it uh, even even if it slips to the mid double digits from 20 percent. Um, that's that's pretty nice in this market for like a platform that has. I think still a whole lot of low-hanging fruit and a lot of optionality and a lot of interesting things yeah. that they could try to capitalize on. Then if you like come at it from a DCF, the way I do it is I kind of like take them up to that um, 2019 ARPU by 2024, uh, get them by 20, I, I, I'm like unfair in it because I had to like temper myself, get them to the low end of their margin range by 2028 and apply my terminal multiple then, you're talking about a stock that should be in the mid $60. Um, and, you know, one of the beauties of it all is I think the best business model for Twitter might be one that they've yet to even explore. And they're finally truly dropping hints that they're going to do it. I think some sort of premium offering, which is built around. I originally was like when I would talk to the company, I'd be like, so are you going to do a premium feeds? Or are you going to do subscriptions, blah, blah, blah. And they like I, I feel like that phrasing rubbed people the wrong way. So I've started calling it creative empowerment. When are you going to do some sort of creative empowerment? Like. <laughs> You know, and and I think it matters because, like, to me, creative empowerment means more than just creating, uh, you know, a business model. It means you're giving creatives tools and you're giving them an opportunity to make revenue, right? You're giving them tools to kind of, like, enhance their creativity and enhance their ability to reach audience with their creativeness. And you're giving them, like, an actual way to make money. And in exchange, you take a little bit of a cut. And I think that would be something that could be a billion-dollar revenue line for Twitter down the line. When you when you think about Twitter, one of the I I don't know how to resolve it, but there seems to be this ongoing censorship issue with it, and it's meant that there have been some competitors like Gab.ai and Parler have popped up, and it's still you know it's still in an ecosystem where we we've discussed previously it's not necessarily a social network in the way that Facebook is a social network or the way that Instagram perhaps is a social network, but it's still sort of thought of as a, in that kind of category of things that it's that style of things so how, how do you see it resolving these issues and competing with sort of the new and the incumbents and whatever else comes along TikTok? yeah okay so this is like one of the biggest i think um challenges for twitter um 
say what you will about the president, he has put Twitter in a corner where no matter what decision they make, they're going to have people that are really angry at them. If they don't, and, and you know, I censor might be too strong a word because I think they really just like added context to certain things that didn't actually censor. Let's leave semantics aside. Um, if you don't censor, um, you know, you're going to have a whole lot of people that are angry at you for letting him violate like very, you know, uh, not even gray area rules on their platform, black and white rules. Um, like why, why is this guy above the rules of your platform? On the other hand, if you actually do moderate or censor, then you're going to have a whole lot of people that are like, he's our president. How could you moderate or censor him? Like he should be able to say whatever he wants. And so they were in a lose-lose situation. But the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who say things like, and, and I think this is one of the most mistaken impressions, um, that Twitter uh, needs the president because he gives them engagement. And if you actually went around and spoke to a lot of advertisers, he is the worst thing that's ever happened for the platform because no one wants their copy to be run alongside engagement that's based around things that get people angry. It, there, there's yeah. no one who's worse to market to than an angry person. An angry person is literally, <laughs> you know, they're factually putting it up an emotional wall to being swayed on anything. Um, so I need to buy that gun now, Elliot. I need the gun immediately. <laughs> I don't need the waiting time. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's about all you can market. Um, so yeah, people don't want it. People aren't like amenable to being swayed by marketing in those kinds of moments. So a lot of advertisers actually shut off entirely. So say what you will about engagement. I mean, that engagement is worth, I'd say actually negative value, um, because advertisers will shut off in other areas. Now, the interesting thing about Twitter is politics is just one niche on Twitter, right? It's best avoided in my humble Absolutely. opinion. But... There's, you know, Fintwit, which I think is one of the most amazing communities in the world. There's basketball Twitter. There's like a, a, a vertical, there's music Twitter. There's, you know, and within every broad label, there are like very niche Twitters. Um, and, you know, I think there's, yeah. the, you know, during COVID, I, I really learned a whole lot about the science Twitter community. There's a really big community around there. Um, I've, I'm blanking on the guy's first name. His last name's Danko. Wrote a great product about, uh, wrote a great uh, Substack about Twitter as the new peer review and how a lot of science, is, you know, in general, has been moving faster because of these communities that are built around Twitter, where you could share your research and get real-time feedback, like real good, critical, smart feedback that help you re refine your own research process. And like, who needs peer review when you could do it in real time and kind of iterate your process and move it yeah. along that way? Like that could literally only happen on Twitter. You're not going to do that on Instagram where you're sharing pictures of yourself yeah. with your kids and your family on the ski slopes or something like that. Um, it's just not the right format. It's not the right platform for it. Now, like TikTok, you mentioned TikTok. I don't think Twitter competes with TikTok at all. Obviously, it would have been nice had Vine still been in existence and they could try to create some sort of short form video. But I totally understand why they deprecated that product at the time. You know, Twitter had thrown a lot of shit against the wall to see what would stick in their early days, trying to be something more glorious than they actually were. Um, so, you know, they had to focus on their core essence. They had to redefine their core essence. I think they didn't have a core essence, which was one of the big problems. Like everything in early Twitter was defined vis-a-vis -vis Facebook. Like in their S1, they talked about wanting to get a billion users. And I don't think that was the right North Star. They should have been you know, redefining themselves around what Jack Dorsey inevitably understood was Twitter is about interest. It's about what you're interested in. They have an interest graph. And that's a big part of why, like, you know, their advertising didn't work, doesn't work the same way for DR uh, as Facebook does, because Twitter built their entire ad, like, 
process. Like they can't identify. I, I shouldn't say can't because this is changing fast. They couldn't identify what I was interested in. They could infer based on who I followed what I might be interested in. But they have now with machine learning started learning what I'm interested in directly. They've started labeling things and topics. And people say like, oh, come on, it's so easy. It's not. When I say skate, skate to where the puck is going, because I'm a hockey guy and I always talk about hockey, I might be talking about Twitter the business, right? Am I talking business because Warren yeah. Buffett used that quote? Or am I talking hockey? Like, how do you know how to categorize that? You know, these are really challenging questions. And there are a lot of, like, you know, gray areas. But now that they're able to have topics, that I'm able to subscribe to topics, that, you know, once they infuse that in onboarding, I'll be able to onboard. And instead of, like, having this white space where, like, you know, I knew a lot of people who I thought should find Twitter interesting. I had to manually onboard them being like, I know you so well. These are the people you should follow. And, you know, they now love Twitter and they're way too addicted. Um, I know some of them are inevitably going to listen to this. You know who you are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, having that capability to actually know my interest instead of inferring my interest will make Twitter a better experience for me. It'll make Twitter more accessible to people who don't use it yet and can onboard. And by the way, there are a lot of people who had been, you know, registered as users and churned pretty fast because they didn't know what to do. So they'll re-engage those people. And then they'll also have a way better product for advertisers. Like what advertisers want is to actually know interest. They don't want to infer interest. You can get way better results when you actually know what you're there for. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think I said this to you yesterday, but the, the uh, all the other platforms have the problem that they when they get very hot the issue is that it's great for the moment that it happens to you but if you get very hot then at some point the next generation that comes through doesn't want to be on the same platform i think as the older generation which is kind of what happened to facebook they got lucky that they got instagram or smart that they got instagram and it's sort of happening to instagram a little bit with tiktok they're trying to recreate the same capability but i don't even know if it's going to matter because i think it's a it's just a you just don't want to be on the same thing that your parents or older siblings or older people are on. Twitter has sort of never been really cool and it's much harder to use. But once you're in it, it's much more useful, I think. So it sort of it self-selects for people who are going to be very sticky, which might mean that it grows a little bit more slowly. But it's also going to be a little bit more resilient. 100% agree. And I think there's a trade-off between slow growth and resilience. That's an awesome point because I, I really think there's some truth to that. I wrote my last commentary about that very notion and I didn't even apply it to Twitter. My God, I wish I could go back. <laughs> um, but I think that's really freaking important. Like I think that actually matters. You know, Twitter has um, uh, an appeal that's very different. These other platforms are on a treadmill competing with one another over who's got the best new feature and who's a little more interesting and where can I make sure that my grandparents and parents don't see me tweeting or maybe right. tweeting the wrong pushing out content that's not uh, appropriate for their eyes. Um, Twitter is about engaging in your interests. And I think, you know, one of the realities that that billion dollar aspiration, uh, sorry, that billion user aspirational number they threw out in the beginning didn't grasp was that Twitter shouldn't be for everyone. It should be for people who are really interested in things and really want to, you know, indulge in those interests. And I think that's really good because when you actually get that sort of platform, it's way more sticky and it's much harder to compete with. And, you know, I've called it the funnel for anything interesting in life uh, because I've had so much serendipity from, you know, like we 
basically met over Twitter, right? I've met so many right. interesting people over Twitter. Uh, I talked to like investors in uh, the Nordic countries who I met over, you know, sports gambling uh, investment and that we otherwise in the prior world could have never gotten to know one another. So it's global, um, it's communal, it's a way that you actually meet people. Um, you know, it's so many different things that I don't think the other platforms are really geared toward. Like those other platforms are more based on, I mean, TikTok's a little different, but like Facebook, I mean, it's, it's purely based on who you know as friends and family. And, you know, you love those people, but you don't necessarily want to, you know, talk stocks with them all day. Um, I would, I would much rather do that on Twitter. Right. <laughs> I just uh, I want to change gears a little bit because we are we're going to run out of time, but I really wanted to talk to you about PayPal as well because it's one of the stocks that I said yesterday. It's optically expensive; it's trading at less than a point of free cash flow, and I just wanted to you you had a very thoughtful approach to valuing it, and I just wanted to if you could do that again for me, please. Yeah. So one of the things I do in my process is I build you know, a reverse engineer DCF. And I'm trying to look at what is embedded in today's stock price. And I'm going to go all the way up to like the KPIs that lead to revenue growth. So what drives revenue growth? And so, you know, the first thing I'm obviously trying to understand is what margins does the market expect this business to have? And, you know, what sort of revenue growth do they need to uh, kind of achieve today's stock price? Um, but the next thing I'm going to do once I have an understanding of that is I'm going to test like, the sensitivity of each of the key lines and each of the key assumptions. Um, and, you know, in PayPal from the very beginning, I got involved in PayPal uh, with eBay before the split. So I've been involved for a while. PayPal was like once a really frustrating stock, much like Twitter is today, where, you know, it's seemingly nothing could go right. And they similarly had a whole lot of code debt and they had to like replatform everything to be able to kind of achieve some of their growth ambitions. Uh, today. And then the other thing that they really needed was they needed Square to come along. Uh, Jack Dorsey, well done. Um, and, you know, create the <laughs> Cash App and start doing things with a much broader mandate and, you know, much faster. God, Jack moves fast, right? He's not the one holding them back. He's moved really fast here. Um, and do things that are like interesting and different and kind of, uh, you know, they really shook PayPal up and PayPal realized that they had a much bigger, different opportunity than they had been pursuing at first. Now, one more step back is that Dan Schulman, when he came in as CEO, he had to work within an ecosystem in a, in a really challenging way. When he came on as CEO, Charlie Scharf at the time was the CEO of Visa. Now he's at Wells Fargo, but at the time he was at Visa. Um, and he was saying things like, I think his literal quote was, um, we view PayPal as our frenemy and we will go nuclear if they don't play against them, if they don't play nice with us. And so Shulman had to like really navigate this complex mosaic of uh, players in the payment ecosystem who each had important roles uh, to play. And, you know, what he what he did that was pretty brilliant was he struck partnerships with each of them in very constructive ways where he aligned PayPal's mission of digitizing payments with each of these players. So like all the players in the ecosystem now have incentive to, you know, kind of participate in driving growth PayPal's way. And so one of the things that I observed when I was doing this uh, reverse engineered DCF and toying around with the numbers, everyone was obsessed with take rate at PayPal. They're like, my God, take rate's degrading. Um, how could they ever drive incremental margin with take rate? And it turns out there's one other line that's really important. It's how many times uh, users transact on PayPal per year the engagement line, right? So I think at the time of the split, it was about 17 times a year. So you're not even talking about 
um, once a week that people are using PayPal, you're not even talking about twice a month, like one and a half times a month, the average PayPal user would use the platform. And I said, you know, right then and there, I realized there's so much leverage to this line in so many different ways. So for example, if you bring in a new user, um, you have to spend customer acquisition costs against that user, right? It, it costs money to actually acquire a user and bring them in. So if you bring a new person in to use it 17 times, I mean, that's great. It's got its core margin attached to it, though. But if you get someone who's already a user to go from 17 times engaged per year to 34 times per year, you have no customer acquisition cost against it. So that 17 times per year is worth a whole lot more than bringing in a new user. And right. so interestingly, you know, now we're nearing we're, we're at about 30 times per year that the average person engages with PayPal. Um, so, you know, they've nearly doubled the amount of times people use the platform. And one of the things I do when I structure a position is I say, OK, you know, I want to buy it when it's GARP, but I want to hold it when it's growth. Right. So if I get it right, I'm really yeah. going to hold it through, you know, their their real growth period. Um, and so, you know, PayPal is definitely a little more expensive now. But the people that they're bringing on are so much more valuable than the people in the past because they're maintaining that higher uh, engagement level. Um, so when you think about what they've done since COVID, COVID pulled forward like five years of growth. They added more users in the first half of this year than I think they did the prior three years combined. Um, and it's just phenomenal what that does when you kind of like roll forward the economics of the business. So when you look at it on a trailing basis, um, the numbers don't look quite as good as what they will look like when you roll things forward, as they continue to bring on new customers, as they get engagement of their new cohorts to be consistent with their older cohorts. And then they're doing way more creative things in terms of how they get you to use the app and how you engage. Um, one of the awesome things with Bitcoin, and I had been involved in Square, I'm no longer, uh, no longer hold shares. I wish I held it a little longer. Um, one of the interesting things in, in Square is that I, I think it was through Square that I first encountered when they opened Bitcoin trading, the average person who had, uh, bought Bitcoin, opened the app twice a day. PayPal was having a challenging time getting people to open their app, right? Because you can engage with PayPal without opening the app at all. So you open it up to Bitcoin trading and now all of a sudden you have people using it twice a day and you have some valuable real estate. So like if you open the app right now, in the app, there's a promo, get three free months of uh, Spotify. If you know you click this button, how much do you think Spotify pays for that? That's really valuable. And, you know, next month, it's going to be someone else. The month after that, it's going to be somewhere else, someone else. So there's so many like adjacencies and line extensions that they can now pursue that they didn't have the capability before because of their tech stack and because of what they uh, were building toward and because they didn't have this creative spark that Square has actually given them. So uh, it's pretty interesting. What does Honey do yeah, for Yeah, Honey has a lot to do with that Spotify. I was really upset with Honey the day it happened. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are blowing money. Um, you know, this thing doesn't make sense to me. And I totally understand it now. It makes so much sense. It was really smart. I mean, you could quibble over the price. Um, one of the interesting things, their CFO from, uh, you know, he came in on the spinoff, John Rainey. He came from the airline industry. And in the airlines, you have to pinch every penny. Um, so I do have, like, yeah. some respect for the frugality that's at their heart. And, you know, he made this commitment to acquire, I think it was about $3 billion worth of acquisitions a year. Uh, while moving their balance sheet from like a way overcapitalized balance sheet to one of these more like what you'd expect out of a payments company, like an optimized balance sheet. And they probably even eventually, they should gradually walk themselves to kind of like two terms net debt to EBITDA uh, balance sheet. Um, 
And so Honey was an acquisition that kind of checked all the boxes for them in terms of the size. And I was like, well, oh my God, this thing doesn't really make a lot of money. It made $100 million and they paid, I think, $3 billion for it. What? Um, you know, that's pretty big. <laughs> um, but interestingly, Honey gives them a lot of capabilities. Honey is an important uh, way for them to get more information on purchase intent and to move up the funnel with their customers. Um, and one of the things I always said about uh, the PayPal split off from eBay is had the company existed in an entirely different way where it was PayPal that owned eBay and eBay was a service for their merchants in contrast to eBay owning PayPal, the essence of the company would have made sense and it would have worked, but the actual existence was entirely backwards and they couldn't rejigger that internally. So, you know, they, they existed to fulfill the wrong uh, purpose. You know, I actually presented it back in 2015 at Manual of Ideas, and I related it to Kant's categorical imperative, like treat everything as an end unto itself. And, you know, they just weren't really doing it. They weren't pursuing the right end. Um, you know, their end should have been, you know, facilitating everything for payment uh, for, for merchants. Like they should have been in the business of serving merchants and kind of Shopify is going there and you see what that's done to their market cap. Um, but, you know, Honey kind of achieves that ambition uh, from a different angle in a different way and let them actually start uh, giving literally on a platter uh, consumer intent to their merchant base. And that's something that they've never been able to do before. Yeah, I thought that was a really clever insight. It kind of blew my mind when, when I first heard you say that. Um, we've run out of time, unfortunately, Elliot, as much as I'd like to just keep on going with this. Uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of going about I'm doing gonna that? I'm going to say go for Twitter. I have open DMs. Uh, <laughs> handle is at Elliot Turn. What's... Um, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-U-R-N and, uh, you know, always open to talking with people and uh, you can email me Elliot at RGAIA.com. That's perfect. Our Elliot Turner, RGA Investment Advisors, thank you very much. Thank you much. so much, Toby.